This sermon's name is The Renewed Heart. Yes. Is it? <laughs> Did I have a mistake in there? Is there two different titles? No. Oh, oh is it misspelled? Okay. <laughs> I apologize for that. Yeah, sorry about that. It's embarrassing for a former English teacher. Oh, you're right. Yeah. The Renewed Heart. That's right. It's the renewed heart, the renewed heart. All right, let's take a look at uh, these verses, uh, 129 to 136. Uh, everybody in the room, no doubt, has at some point seen a condemned building. Is that right? Uh, on the news? Okay. What's that? Oh, in Hawaii. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, what is a characteristic of a condemned building? What makes it condemned? Unfit for what? Occupation, occupation right? And normally, uh, it's so unfit for occupation that uh, it's not really worth fixing. Uh, maybe the municipality or the county has judged it so far gone that they won't even allow someone to own it and use it as it is or even fix it up sometimes. Sometimes it re it's required that it be completely raised and rebuilt from the bottom up. Well, what David is telling us in these uh, eight verses tonight, and the reason I'm calling it the renewed heart, is because the Bible says that sin has condemned us. That word is used numerous times in the Bible to describe sin and its effect on the human life. It hasn't just made us to where we need a little bit of sprucing up to add a little curb appeal or window dressing. Sin has rendered us unfit for someone's occupation. Whose occupation? God's, right? God designed human life for his own occupation, for him to move into our lives and live in it. But what sin has done is it has affected not just one little corner of our lives, and it hasn't just affected it in a small degree. It's affected every corner of our lives in, in such a degree that God can't move in without an entire renovation of the heart. David is getting at that by describing how he has been renovated by the Lord. That's what these eight verses are about. He has been renovated in three very important ways, which I'll tell you are the very same ways that the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, renovates us as Christians today. If you look at your bulletin, I'll, I'll show you what they are, and we'll spend some time talking about each one. Uh, first of all, David receives a new delight. That's the first two verses, 129 and 130. Secondly, David receives a new relationship in the middle four verses, 131 to 134. And then finally, this one might not seem like good news, but I'll tell you it is. He receives a new sorrow in the last two verses, 135. To 136. I'll tell you why that's a good thing when we get there. All right, so first of all, there is a new delight that David has. Uh, take your eyes and look at the first um, pair of verses, 129 and 130. You'll notice David is concerned here not just with what he does now that he has been renewed by God, but why he does it. Uh, it says, verse 129, my soul keeps them. Do you see that? Now, what does them refer to? God's testimonies, which is carried over from the first part of the verse. My soul keeps your testimonies. Now, look at this. 
Why does his soul keep God's testimonies? They're wonderful. That's what he says. Your testimonies are wonderful. They are full of wonder. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of them gives me light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Let me tell you that something that's really important about the Bible, about all you know, kinds of commandments that you find in the Bible. God is concerned not just with what we do or what we don't do. God is also very concerned with why we do it or don't do it. Uh, motivations matter. Now let me ask you this. You just got to put on your thinking cap. Why does God care so much about why we do what we do as long as we do what we're supposed to do? What's the big deal? Worship. Worship. Okay, that's great. What else? Matter of the heart. Yes, yeah, keep going with that. All this is good. Clint? Or robots or machines, yes. Sons, daughters, intelligent creatures that can intelligently and consciously yield themselves up to God. Remember this morning when Hannah lent Samuel back to the Lord? That was a conscious decision that she made, a personal decision. She individually decided to make that gift back to the Lord. And God was greatly pleased with it because it wasn't just that she did it. It was that she did it out of love. She did it out of commitment to the Lord. Jesus says the same thing uh, to the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman brings up a debate to Jesus. Jesus, my Samaritan forefather said you ought to worship here in Samaria on this hill. Your Jewish ancestors said you have to worship in Jerusalem on that hill at the temple. Which one is it? Gotcha, right? This is a theological debate that she's trying to pull him into. Do you remember how Jesus answered that theological debate? That's right. He did the old Solomon split the baby in two, right? He, he, He gave a higher wisdom that was really saying that neither Jew nor Samaritan had the ultimate answer. Because a time is coming when you'll neither worship here nor there, but anywhere, because the true worshipers the Father seek worship in spirit and in truth. That is, with the heart, with the motivation, with the very soul. Uh, God is spirit, after all, and therefore those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is not pleased merely with an external uh, ritual or an external uh, rule-following God is concerned that people do the right thing, of course, and avoid the wrong thing. But he's concerned that they do that for the right reason. And so David is professing that his heart has been changed. Now, the reason I say it's been changed is because later he's going to say, lots of other people don't do this. That's the last verse. Did you notice that? My eyes shed streams of tears because many people do not keep your law. But now I've come to be one who wants to keep your law. I I do keep your testimonies. I I guard them. I I keep them as if they're precious to me. And I'm very careful to following out all your instructions because I now find them to be wonderful. I have a new taste for the word of God. 
The word wonderful uh, is actually the, similar to the word miracle in the Bible. Uh, you may be familiar. Sometimes the Bible will describe a thing using two or more of, the, of a similar kind of word to make you see the fullness of that thing. So signs, wonders, miracles. Have you heard that phrase from the Bible? Signs, wonders, miracles. They're all really three the same thing, but they're slightly different meanings in order to help you understand the fullness of what a miracle is. A wonder is a miracle. Uh, David finds God's word to be miraculous in its greatness. And it is miraculous. Because if you think about it, the testimonies of God were given to people by God himself communicating to them in a way that put it beyond question. Which is a miraculous event. A breaking in to the world of the creator you know, really kind of reversing or uh, breaking the laws of nature to come in and say, Abraham, Moses, listen to me. This is my heart. This is my will. This is my desire for you. Write it down and pass it to future generations. David finds that to be so wonderful. When he opens the Bible, it's like he's opening a door to heaven and he sees that well-lighted room of heaven shining its light down into the world. That's what he describes in verse 30. The unfolding, or the word there is door, the opening door of your word gives light. It gives so much light to the world that even the simple-minded people, amen, thank the Lord, simple-minded people can become wise can get understanding does that excite you you don't have to be a certified genius to understand the way God works because God has put the cookies on the bottom shelf as J.I. Packer said once the Bible says feed my sheep not feed my giraffes and so the Lord made his word understandable at a low level to where the sheep can graze because we need that. We're not giraffes spiritually where we can get to the heights and pick the choice fruits from way up top. We need it served up to us and God has done that. He, and I'm not saying, and this is not saying that God's word is easy to understand in every way, but it's saying that an ordinary person, if they apply themselves can become an extraordinarily wise person because of the gift and wonder of the Word of God. Uh, in fact, a great example of this is the great man John Bunyan. He wrote what book? Quiz. Pilgrim's Progress. That's right. Very good. Pilgrim's Progress. He was uh, one of the Puritans in the 1600s in England. But unlike many of the other Puritans, John Bunyan had almost no education. Most of the other ones were scholars. I mean, certified like Oxford University, literally Cambridge University scholars. Um, John Bunyan didn't finish high school. And yet, uh, as one of those other Puritan writers says, when you cut John Bunyan open, he bleeds bibline. In other words, he bleeds Bible. And if you've ever read The Pilgrim's Progress... And you know it's one of my favorite books, and I think everybody should read it. It is that way. I mean, this man who didn't even finish high school became a genius because he just simply applied himself to understanding Scripture. That's the way that the Bible works. It's like a door has been opened to us to heaven itself. And that the light of heaven itself is now beaming down onto the world 
What a wonder it is. What a miracle. I would say besides maybe the resurrection of the dead, resurrection of Jesus, there is no greater miracle that God has ever done than to give us his word. We could debate that. But I think that's true because if you think about the other miracles that God did, almost all of them were given to confirm that the word was true. Therefore, they are all servants to the greater miracle of the giving of the Bible. You say, well, you've got to prove that to me. Well, contrary to popular belief, miracles in the Bible are not everyday occurrences. And everybody doesn't experience them. Uh, it seems like that sometimes. But that's because the time periods that are mainly focused on in the Bible are those time periods in which the Bible was given, which were the time periods where miracles were very, very prolific. During long stretches of time between that, there weren't that many miracles. You get miracles with Moses. You get miracles with the prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And of course, you get a lot of miracles with Jesus and with the apostles. But there were many ages, many days, where the miracles were not put forth. In fact, the Bible tells us that God gave miracles to certify that the message being given through those servants was really from God. The greater miracle, therefore, I conclude, is the giving of the Bible. Do you treat it that way? Have you ever been on a sports team and maybe you weren't the best one on the team? And maybe you got the most improved award at the end of the year <laughs> or the sportsmanship award. These are the ones that you get when you're not the best player, but, you know, you can be proud of them. Maybe you've heard one of your coaches say about you, well, you know, she might not be that good or he may not be that good, but he's got heart. Right? Heart does go a long way. What David is saying in verses 129 and 130 is, I now have heart for God's word. What God is after is not just that we robotically listen and robotically do things that God tells us to do, but that we do those things with heart. And the way that God opens up our lives to give us that heart is he makes his word sweet to us. He gives us a taste for it. I would say that's one of the first blessings you get when you're born again. Is the Bible becomes not just anymore a dead, dusty, dry, ancient artifact. But it becomes a living, breathing, wonderful, treasure-filled mine waiting for you to mine it. Have you experienced that? That kind of movement of your heart? I think it's an important question to think about. It's one thing to hear other people tell you, honey is sweet. It's a whole other thing to actually taste honey and be able to say, that's what honey is sweet like. When God makes a person born again, when he begins to rebuild a condemned life, that's one of the first things he does. He gives you a taste to where you don't just have to listen to somebody else telling you, the Bible's wonderful, you should read it, it's good for you, you should obey it, okay, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. 
Now you have a taste. Oh, the Bible is wonderful. When I open it, it's like heaven is being opened and out of that door is flowing light and this old simple person is becoming wise by being tutored by the scriptures. So many people uh, come to church or, or, or have been in church their whole lives and they still think Christianity is just this rigid ritual duty of tradition and why is that? Now, sometimes it might be because people actually teach that. Maybe they do. You know, I'm sure there are people who teach that or at least give that aroma uh, as church leaders. It's very possible that we could lead people astray that way. But I think a great many times we think that because we haven't yet had that personal taste. As a pastor, I've heard it before. Pastor, lately your sermons have been so much better. A lot of times, and sometimes it's, I hope that I'm improving all the time, right? But a lot of times I have to think, you know, maybe it's you that has changed, and praise God. It tastes good to you now. Um, it's part of being born again. If God doesn't give you this taste or this delight, then what happens? Well, you're either going to decide to grit your teeth and bear it because, well, tradition. And you're going to end up like Saul, you know, the apostle Paul, before he was born again. The old rigid, dirty, you know, or rigid, uh, angry, religious person. Or you're going to give it up altogether, right? But when God gives you this taste, it opens your life to a new way of life. Being born again gives us almost like new spiritual DNA. Your whole new, your, your spiritual DNA is recoded to where now you can do those things that God is calling on you to do. David says, I keep your word. My soul, in fact, keeps them. Why? Because they're wonderful. I believe that. All right, let's go to the second thing, which is David gets a new relationship with God. A new relationship with God. Uh, when you go to the doctor and you have something wrong with you, how does the doctor know how to diagnose what it is that is wrong with you? Run tests. Run tests. Yep. So what, what are they looking at when they read those tests or look at those tests? What are they comparing it to? Normal. normal. <laughs> yes. What is normal? <laughs> right? What is normal? Well, yeah, yeah, really. Normal is messed up, right? But what are they compared? What is the normal for a doctor? Average. Ideal. Ideal, right? There's a difference, right? It isn't even maybe just average because your average person probably has something wrong with them. So they're not just saying, hey, good news, you're really sick, but you're within the 50th percentile. <laughs> That's not really good news when you go to the doctor. You don't want to be in the 50th percentile, you want to be healthy. And so a doctor is always, this is the whole, I think, skill of being a doctor, is you're always comparing the person as they are with what should be the idea, what ought to be in the most ideal situation. Well, in spiritual life, I think we have the same thing that we can do. The Bible is often showing us the way things are. Okay, It's showing us um, averages. Here's what Abraham did. Here's what David did. And, and there's a mixed bag. There's some good. There's some bad. 
But all the time, too, the Bible is giving us these glimpses of the ideal, of the way things ought to be if everybody was exactly the way that they should be by the grace of God. Why is it giving you that? Is it so that you will say, oh, man, oh, well, I can never be like David here, so I'm not a Christian? Is that why he's telling you this? No, it's so that you can visit the doctor. Dr. David here is trying to give you a test result. Here is what it sounds like ideally to belong to God with a new relationship. Now you test yourself to see whether your relationship with God lines up with it. And so look with me at those middle four verses, 131 to 134. And he tells us two things that should be true in the ideal. He says, first, I open my mouth and pant. Been doing a lot of that lately in the heat because I long for your commandments turn to me and be gracious to me as your way is with those who love your name and then he says keep my steps steady according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts and there you have it in four verses the ideal relationship with God that we all are called to have that we all can have that we all should strive for there are two aspects to it first of all it is based on the grace of God it's a relationship based on God's grace on the one side you have David's own personal longing for God on the other side you have David's assurance that God is going to be gracious to him because he has promised to continually show grace to those who love him. Do you see that? I pant for your word. I long. My heart, again, thinks of your word as wonderful. I think of your grace as wonderful, and I want more of it. And I'm coming to you, God, because I am absolutely sure that when I call on your name, you will hear me. And when I'm asking for grace, I know it's a, a, a request you'll never deny. Because you've sworn, you have covenanted with your people to always give more grace when we call out for it. You hear David's confidence there? He knows his relationship with God is not based on how he feels at any given moment. He knows it's based on God alone. Grace alone. And so he comes with this boldness. Even though he's over here panting and he's wore out by life, he feels like he's gone a long time maybe without tasting the goodness of God, yet still he knows God's going to turn, God's going to be gracious because that is your way. In fact, I love that phrase in verse 132. I hope you love it. Isn't it good to be able to say about God, this is his way with people? Isn't that good? It's good because so much of God is, is shrouded in mystery because God is, well, well, he's mysterious. He's God. He's unseen. He's un, unknowable, really, beyond his own revelation of himself. And so to be able to say, based on his word, God, this is your way with people, and this is not your way. This is how you do things. This is how you don't do things. What a freedom that is. What a joy. To be in a relationship with God that is secure, certain, 
and not something we have to guess at. That's the ideal. Now, put yourself up against that. How sure are you about which way God will take in your case with you? How certain are you that he will turn his face towards you and be gracious to you as often as you ask? Well, when I put myself over that, I, well, I realize I'm not ideal. I'm more average than ideal. How about you? Because here's the average way. Oh, Lord, I don't know what's going on in my life. I'm so tired. I feel alone. Not sure what you're up to. I hope you'll do this. So I'm asking, but by hope, I mean maybe there's an off chance that I'll catch you on a good day. Right? Aren't we so cagey when it comes to the way that we approach the Lord? So tentative sometimes. That's, that's more the average But David is showing us here the ideal. A Christian, a person who's been born again, who is no longer condemned but accepted, is someone who can go to God with assurance and confidence that God has a way and he's going to keep to his way. I think that's good news. Now look at secondly. The relationship is also based or characterized by freedom. Freedom. Verses 133 and 134. Freedom. Keep steady my steps. Don't let me falter. Don't let me fall down. Let no iniquity have dominion over me. Freedom from what? What's the ideal? Iniquity. What does iniquity mean? Sin. Now, this is an easy one to compare ourselves with. If the ideal is no iniquity would have dominion over us, put yourself against that. Do any iniquities have dominion over you at any time of your life? Do any of them get the upper hand? Maybe it's just in your thoughts. Maybe it's in your way you feel. Maybe it's in actually what you do. Oh, man, the average is... We're always fighting the battle against sin and often failing, often losing. David says, but here's what can be. Here is the picture of health. When you're born again, God actually gives you the resources you need to find victory over sin's dominion. See, not only has the guilt of sin been removed through the death of Jesus, but the power of sin has been broken through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus. And so David is able to say, look, God, keep me steady. Let no dominion get over me. Keep me back from sin. Wow. And then in 134, he goes on to say, I'm also free from something else. What else am I free from? Redeem me from man's oppression so okay not only am i to be redeemed from the dominion of sin but also the dominion of men we've talked about this before but david is struggling often in his life with the enemies that are trying to discourage him from following god there are even people who are trying to bind david's conscience 
to make him uh, obey men rather than obey God. David says here, the ideal for a Christian is not only would we be free from sin, but we would be free from any man who would try to take us away from the way of the Lord. That it would be your soul under God. Directly. Right? No need for anybody else getting in the way and changing things. But you directly hearing from the Lord, knowing what his ways are, and lovingly seeking his ways because you love him, because he loved you. David says that's the ideal. Now put ourselves against that. How many times do the words of other people get dominion over you? Hmm? How many times do you get oppressed by what other people think? Or say or don't say? Hmm? Am I the only one? No, right? We, we put ourselves against both of these tests, grace and freedom. And what we all have to say is, man, we need to learn so much more about how to walk by grace. Because I'm always battling uncertainty when it comes to God. And I really need to find this new freedom because I'm always falling under dominion of sin and the oppression of what other people think, say, or do. I'm letting them dictate my life rather than God calling me to do what he wants me to do. I need to grow in freedom too. Grace and freedom. Now, I think this is great because there probably aren't anything, you know, any two ideas more misunderstood than grace and freedom. Think about that. What's the common way of misunderstanding grace? Have to earn it? Yep. Or, there's another way you can misunderstand it. Oh God, let me live by grace, which means indulge me, give me whatever I want, make me happy, grace, oh yeah, grace, I can do anything, it's all right, it's all good. Indulgence, okay, grace is not indulgence. David knows that. He says, look, turn to me and be gracious to me because that's the way with those who love you. Why is he asking? Because I pant and long to keep your commandments. This is not indulgence. This is a desire to be faithful to God, which needs the grace in order to enable him to do it. Well, freedom is also misunderstood. How do people normally misunderstand freedom? Permissiveness, right? I, whatever I want to do, that's what freedom is. I will do what I want to do. Now, what is true freedom? David tells you. True freedom is to have no iniquity get dominion over me. Now, that's freedom. What's true freedom? Not letting man's oppression dominate me. When you approach freedom as I can do whatever I want to do, what ends up happening? Hmm? Death, but yes, yeah, exactly. Death, ultimately. Short of death, the very two opposite, the two opposite things, right? Iniquity does get dominion over me. I find in me not only desires for what is good that I could follow, 
But I also find in me desires for evil, which I could equally decide to follow in my freedom. And when I do, Jesus said it right. He says, those who commit sins are slaves to sins. In other words, when you do sin, you are under the dominion of sin. It ends up entangling you. You see, freedom on our own terms ends up as bondage. Real freedom, this new relationship God has given us, is one in which all the dominion of evil of any kind, of any sort is broken, and we become purely under the leadership of God himself, speaking in the scripture, animating our heart, giving our hearts life by the Holy Spirit. And so just like a doctor would say, all right, I'm, I'm reading your chart, I'm reading your scan, and here's the way it ought to look. Okay, I'm not talking about the way it on average looks. I'm talking about here's the way a lung ought to look. Now, you see how yours has this white spots and these various other blobs and things? That's what we need to get rid of. It's not supposed to be like that. Now, on average, many people may have what you have, but, you, you know, the goal is to compare it with the ideal. David says, here's a spiritual life that has gone from condemned to alive. Uh, this person now is inhabited by God. Grace reigns. Not just indulgence, but they long and pant for God's word and they know that God will deal with them according to what he has said. They are sure of it. This is your way with me. And it's someone who knows what true freedom is. I don't want sin to have dominion over me. I do not want to let other people oppress me. I want to listen to you. I want to follow you. That's what it should be. Now, let's look, talk about our lives. Here's those blo these blobs over here and this blob over there. And this is the where we are falling short. Now, what do we do about that? We ask the Lord, don't we, to show us what are ways that I'm getting in my own way? How, how am I getting in my own way to not walk by grace or to not experience your true freedom in my life? Are there changes I need to make? Maybe there's ways of thinking that I fall into before I even get out of my bedroom in the morning that I need to relearn a new way of thinking, a new way of starting my day. The Lord will help you with that. Because God, who's given you a new delight, has also given you a new relationship with Him. And He intends for our relationship to be healthy. Well, that leads us to the last thing. And this is the one that you think, man, this doesn't sound good at all. God, when you are born again, gives you a new sorrow. Y'all ready for that? What makes you cry? Everybody has a different dew point. It's one way of putting it. Some people cry very, very easily. Other people cry maybe once a decade or so, it seems like. Everybody cries at some point. What makes you cry? That's the question. Now look at the end. What makes David cry? Make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears. Why, David? Why do you cry? Do you cry because the lions that are trying to eat your sheep 
Do you cry because of the bears? Do you cry because of Goliath? Do you cry because of the Philistines? Why do you cry, David? Do you cry because of all the wives you have? Shouldn't have done that, David. <laughs> we talked about that this morning too, right? It never goes well, David. Is that why you're crying? No. What does he say? What's he say? People don't keep your law. Have you ever cried or wept because somebody else did not receive and believe and live by Scripture? Have you ever cried or wept because you didn't believe, receive, or live by Scripture like you ought to? Jesus said to a crowd in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who weep now, for they will be comforted later. What did he mean? Did he, did he want a, a bunch of people that were just always crying over everything? Probably not. But what he was talking about was a broken heartedness over sin that only God can give you. I've, I know a lot of people who are broken hearted over the consequences of sin, but not sin. I know a lot of people who are brokenhearted over physical, circumstantial things that are wrong, all of which may be very valid, but they're not so brokenhearted over the spiritual realities of a sinful and miserable world. When God makes a person born again, he not only changes what we delight in in our relationship, he changes what makes us cry. David, when he looked around him, saw not an Israel that was ready for a revival. He saw an Israel that, by and large, had already walked away from God. That's the reality. We're going to see that in second, first and second Samuel as we study it. Israel is uh, a wily, wayward group of people, just like another people that I know, the Christian church, right? We are basically the same. One writer says, in David's day, God of cert certainly had his loyalists in Israel. There were, there were his steady few. And David knows they, them as kindred spirits. But it seems, this writer says, that the prevailing temper of David's day was religious skepticism. That's not a new problem, by the way. That didn't just start happening in 2020. When everybody started deconstructing. People have been trying to deconstruct God for a long time, very long. In fact, right in this very psalm, David says, they have made void your law, which means they have deconstructed your law. The people of Israel ranged from non-committal, that is, they were half and half, half with God, half with some Baal or something else, or they were thoroughly profane, wicked people, who always were lying in wait to destroy those who were like David. It was a bleak time. 
And so David, who was called to be the king of this people and to lead not only a physical um, nation, but he was called to lead a revival of sorts, he spent time weeping over his country. Paul will later say in Romans uh, chapter 9, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. Remember that part? He's a lot like David. I have unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul, why do you have unceasing anguish? Is it because you were shipwrecked, stoned, put in jail? Why, Paul? Because of my kinsmen Israel, so many of them have not believed in the Messiah. I weep, God. I pour streams of tears because they do not keep your law. In the book of Revelation, John is brought to see a vision of heaven opened and he's seeing God on the throne and the lamb beside the throne and there's this scroll brought out. It has seals on it and the scroll represents the plan of God to bring salvation to the world and uh, somebody asks, one of the angels, is there anyone, or God asks, is there anyone to open the scroll? And they look around heaven, they look around earth and no one is found who can open the scroll or break its seals. In other words, nobody can save the world. And you remember what John did? He broke down and wept. Because it seemed like there was no hope for the world. Well, I'm glad to say in that scene it says the lamb came forward. And he was able to break the seals and open the scroll and bring the salvation to the world. But he wept. Listen, many people assume... Welcome back, kids. Many, many people assume, what about Christians? Many people assume that Christians are judgmental and that they're hungry for control, right? Many people assume that about Christians. They're always judging people and they want to take control of everything so that they make everybody be like them. Why do people think that? Well, probably partly because they're seeing through unbelieving eyes, certainly. But maybe partly because we've given that impression, because we've spoken of issues of sin, judgment, hell, heaven, without weeping. We've told people about the gospel without weeping for them in the closet. One of the major ways that God changes a life is he gives you tears for those who are lost. He gives you tears for those who are sad, broken, separated from God and without hope. And he, he births within us prayers. And I've seen it many times in my life, the prayers that God births in either me or others around me and you guys, the prayers that he births for people, God answers those prayers. When John wept over the world, the lamb came forward and opened the scroll. When David wept over Israel, God made a way for a revival. When we weep over Mulberry, when we weep over Polk County, when we weep over America, what will God do? I don't know. 
But I know this, God has a way with those who love him. It's a way of grace. And this God never lets a single one of his people's good tears 